The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 18th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let us go now to a certain restaurant. Um, sir, excuse me, sir. Are you the manager? Yes. Yes, I, I ordered the turkey salad. Is everything all right, sir? Actually, no, it is not what I wanted. It seemed good at first, but then it got really bitter. And when I told my waiter this wasn't what I wanted, that I wanted something new, he said, too bad, you'll get what we give you, and if you complain, you could be put in jail. Oh, sir, I'm sorry, but you ordered the Recep Tayyip Erdogan turkey salad, and there are no returns. Well, you know, that, that really is a disappointment. Your president doesn't seem to think so. Yeah, well, what is, and what is this stuff in the turkey salad? Please, it's the Recep Tayyip Erdogan turkey salad. His picture is featured prominently on the label. Well, listen, you can take it away. I'll just have, I don't know, an English muffin with uh, some American cheese. Sorry, you can't have those either. When you chose to criticize the Recep Tayyip Erdogan turkey salad, you need to realize that an attack on one is an attack on all. It's right there in the menu, Article 5, right next to the quiches. Fine, then, I'll just have dessert. Very good, sir. It does come with dessert. All right, what are my choices? Well, the Recep Tayyip Erdogan turkey salad. With that, you could have ice cream. You could have a sorbet. But not ISIS. Definitely not ISIS. And that has been another scene from the International House of Dad Jokes. Try the veal. On the show today, I take aim at clams, unicorns, and wayward aircraft carriers. That's in the spiel. But first, a new podcast series looks at the effects of crack in the 80s and documents how we're still feeling those effects today. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Smokable, relatively cheap, named after the sound it made when you lit and inhale. A drug so pure and so strong, it might just as well be called crack of doom. In the mid-80s, crack cocaine and all the violence, addiction, and death it caused inspired a new phase in the war on drugs. It changed how and why police went after people 
and the rules that sanctioned it. Christopher Johnson is the reporter behind a new series from Audible. Don't call it a podcast. It's on the Audible channels, and it's called 100 to 1, The Crack Legacy. Hey, Christopher, thanks for coming by. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. So 100 to 1, that's the ratio. What does the ratio refer to? So it's referring to this portion of a drug law from 1986 that it's a provision inside of the bill that basically punished crack cocaine as if it were 100 times worse than powder cocaine. And so the class implications, I think, are pretty pretty obvious. So five grams of crack get you the same sentence as 500 grams of coke. Exactly right. Any logic to it? Because you get into how that ratio was adopted. In episode two, you hear Eric Sterling, who was, part, who was there helping write this law, um, and they ran it through pretty quickly. Basically, they were going through numbers. How about 18? How about... And there's this one-upsmanship between the Democrats and the Republicans to see who can be tougher on crime. That's as much, and he says, Eric Sterling says in, in, our, in that episode, we were pulling numbers out of our ass. This was uh, a time when uh, Bill Clinton gets elected. He has to show he's tough on crime. That was a thing that uh, Democrats were dealing with. He d- does welfare reform. So this whole, they called a triangulation or tacking to the middle, and a tough on crime policy was definitely part of it. That said, uh, crime was pretty bad, and I think it probably needed to get somewhat tough on though not stupidly tough. Yeah, I mean, there's there's crime writ large, and mm-hmm. then there's the war on crack cocaine specifically. And one of the things that we were really wrestling with and trying to understand at the beginning of the series is which came first, the crack epidemic or the war on crack cocaine? You could make the argument that the war really started going strong just as crack was, you could say, a problem, but not mm-hmm. an epidemic. Um, but with the death of Lynn Bias and a lot of white suburban anxiety about crime in cities for sure around the country, legislators really felt a lot of pressure to do something about it and hit hard. So you have, I think episode two starts with the uh, tape of George H.W. Bush from the White House talking about how this bag of crack, and he holds it up for the camera. Seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. What's his backstory with that? Well, you know what's funny is that, just to take it back for a second, I grew up in Washington, D.C. area. But I certainly remember watching on the news when Bush held that up. I knew Lafayette Park, Mm -hmm. right across the street from the White House, where he said these drugs were purchased. And I remember my mother sort of laughing out loud. Just a a bit of a chuckle. You know, we were so removed from anything that had to do with crack cocaine and the war on drugs and all that kind of stuff. But everybody sort of knew that you got to be kidding me. Everybody in D.C. or everybody with firsthand knowledge knew that this how do you how are you selling drugs right across from the White House? But, you know, millions of people in middle America bought it. And as you document, it was pretty much a setup. Like, it's not that the drugs weren't sold in Lafayette Park, but the kid was induced to sell them to make the point. Absolutely. So they apparently found this kid. uh, The White House found this young guy to buy drugs from. They wanted to stage the whole thing and they told him to come (laughs) to Lafayette Park. And part of the story is that at one point he calls looking for directions and basically says, where the fuck is Lafayette Park? He can't (laughs) find, because it's just not, it's not done. It's not a a drug dinner. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake. This stuff is poison. Your series gets into uh, writing about just powder cocaine and how much that was hyped. Look, it's a bad drug. You know, it affects people. It kills people. 
doesn't necessarily turn them into supernatural monsters, doesn't necessarily make them impervious to pain or, you know, kill the mothering instinct. But throughout our history, there's always been a substance, a backlash, an overstatement. I guess what's different about crack is that with it came the policing and the sentencing that lasts for for years and decades. Right, absolutely. I mean, we have a woman, Nikichi Taifa, who was a lawyer back during the 80s and 90s as this was becoming an issue in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that she says in our series is that crack became the, this black drug. Mm-hmm. It became associated, and not just with any old black folks, with with um, poor people, with the projects, with the hood. And so what she said she saw as, um, as a public defender mm-hmm. was basically like, lines and lines and lines of black men coming through courts. They were almost all for drug charges and not just drugs, but for crack cocaine. So we're seeing really like, not just in Washington, D.C., but again in cities around the country, that this is quickly becoming a drug that's associated with black people, even though, as she also says, white folks smoke crack, Latinos smoke crack, everyone smoke crack. And in fact, um, I got to talk to a former crack dealer who did do time, who told me that she actually got arrested and did federal time because she was taking the crack that she was making in Washington, D.C. and selling it to suburbanites in Virginia, mostly white people. And I rode around with a cop, a former narcotics cop in D.C., who showed me that this is where people would take the bridge in from mm-hmm. Virginia, from suburban Virginia, from suburban Maryland, to buy mostly white people to buy crack cocaine. And yet this became associated with black people. So many people who are busted with any amount of crack. I mean, you uh, detail this guy who has been in jail for how long on a pretty minor charge? He's been in... We're talking about Eric Wilson? Yeah, that's yeah. Okay. Eric Wilson has been in prison about three hours south of Chicago for almost two and a half decades. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons his charge was so big was because he was part of uh, a street gang, the Gangster Disciples in Chicago, selling drugs. It was his first time... Um, offense, no gun charge, and he went to prison for life. He got sentenced for life for his first time drug offense. There and there's there there are people who get ten years, twenty years. Life is not necessarily the most common, but it certainly did happen. Yeah. And we also have in our series a judge who says now she's acknowledging that how much she contributed to this because she says that she sentenced at least 500 men and women unfairly. No one to life, but 10, 20 yeah. years for a first-time drug offender. So what your series convinced me of was, A, the sentencing was insane. B, the panic was a panic and overwrought. Mm. But if there was a big master thesis that was brought up in episode one, that the growth of prisons that we see today is, if you want to say partly due to the crack quote-unquote epidemic, I'd buy that. But I don't think it was largely due to the crack epidemic. I just think society was trending in that way. And also crime was really, really high. There were a lot of murders and crack was a large reason. And there did need to be a lot of arrests. You could push back to me. I understand that, you know, crack got this ball rolling, put a lot of people in prison who shouldn't be in prison, put a lot of cops on the streets. I would say that we needed more cops on the streets. How they did their policing is one question. Uh, How long we kept people in prison is another question. But I'm not sure there is such a direct cause and effect. But what do you say to that? Well, it's complicated. A number, I wish I had the number, but a number, a large number of people who are 
prison, the prison overpopulation that we've seen in the last several years are in there for nonviolent drug offenses. Well, that's about 20%, I think. And in the federal prison, which I think you spent a lot of time in, mm-hmm. it's massive. But mm-hmm. if you take the state prisons into account, it's a problem, but it's not the majority of the problem. Our, our series is not focused on incarceration. Right. Um, we do talk about it, and we talk about Eric Wilson um, as someone who's incarcerated, and we want to tell, tell his experience. But... The problem, as we saw, the the connections that we were trying to draw, the connections that we do draw, are not exclusively about incarceration, but about police behavior, about police violence and police brutality towards black men and women in cities around the country. So we start with Baltimore, and this is partly where this idea came from for me, which is starting with the death of Freddie Gray. And asking for myself a question that I think many Americans and people around the world were asking who are observing Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland and on and on and on. What's happening? Um, People ask different versions of that, which is where did this come from? Why does this keep happening? So we went looking for an answer to that. And we found an answer in the emergence of anti-drug laws, specifically the fight against crack cocaine. And the the trend that we were observing from the mid-80s forward was mass incarceration and increase in a kind of policing, very hyper-aggressive policing. So more police, absolutely. Many of those neighborhoods, those communities that were most affected by the war on drugs were asking for changes in policing. They were asking for maybe even more police, but not for police to behave in the ways that they have been behaving. So we're trying to draw this through line from the emergence of the war on drugs and empowerment of the police, both in law and in material, that basically said, go get crack and go get it hard. And one of the consequences of that is a bump in mass incarceration. It's not the only thing, but 20% is (laughs) one in five. Yeah. This isn't in your documentary either, but why did crack go away? I mean, it didn't go away. People are still smoking crack. The epidemic was never quite as epidemic as the media portrayed it. There was one thing that we really, really wanted to to get to, and we may in the future, who knows, but one piece that we tried to hint at was the role of the media mm-hmm. in pushing this idea. And again, I'm not saying it's all the media. We're journalists, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And saying it's all media, but we know the power of images right, right. and of the media. In... And of course, when the media pushes something, it's because there's an audience, a receptive audience. Exactly for right. Exactly right. Um, Derek, John, and I went to the Library of Congress and watched all of this old news footage from local TV news in DC and you know other big LA and New York, and these big specials that they would do, hour-long specials about Crime on Crack Street. Yeah. Very focused, hour-long specials about crack cocaine. You just saw the man try to sell me crack right out in the middle of the street. The camera wasn't even hidden during that sequence. Had to have seen the camera. It was right here. And there just doesn't appear to be any fear of uh, consequence. And as you can see right here, the police cars are out here. They're out here all the time. And uh, they're not the only things out here. So are the pushers. There's a lot of appetite for that. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. So you play a little Dan Rather, getting Dan Rathery with crack. But yeah, yeah, you've done hours on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's right. So we do have some of that in there, just to give you a sense that of the world that was very real for people in terms of understanding how big of a deal crack was or crack wasn't. So 
crack was a problem then. People smoke crack now. Um, that's for sure. But I don't know that it was ever, ever reached the kind of epidemic proportions that the moment would have had us believe. The name of the series is 100 to 1, The Crack Legacy. I've been speaking with the reporter, Christopher Johnson. It's available on Audible, the channels thing that they have. I think we call it a thing. Christopher, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. The Washington Post posted a video of a giant clam, long rumored but never confirmed. And then they found one of these clams. Here's how Professor Margot Haygood described it. For a biologist who's interested in these uh, bivalves, it's like a unicorn. Like a unicorn. The unicorn, a mythical beast fabled for its beauty, elusiveness, ability to heal, and an association with Christ himself. Clam! A very large clam. In fact, elsewhere it was described, more accurately than the unicorn thing, described as a giant mud-dwelling worm. That I buy. This clam is a unicorn, or like a unicorn, in that unicorns and clams both occupy one end of the good-looking animal continuum. Might not be the same end. And, you know, I don't see a lot of third grade girls lunchboxes decorated with the giant shipworm. That is the actual name of this clam, although it's not actually a worm. It's a bivalve. But more obviously, it's not a unicorn. It's a clam. The unicorn of clams. This is an inherently incompatible notion. It's like the Marcel Marceau of Calypso. The Iggy Azalea of macrame. What does this even mean? To me, what it means is we're experiencing creeping unicornism. So many things these days are called unicorns. Tech companies with a valuation of a billion dollars have been called unicorns. And you know some of these companies, and they probably deserve the name. Uber or Airbnb. But also on that list of unicorn companies, Instacart, Zenefits, SurveyMonkey, DraftKings, Shazam, Vice, and BuzzFeed. I took a quiz. It says I'm a unicorn. Really? It says I'm a Miranda. In the NBA, tall, skilled players like Porzingis or that guy in Milwaukee, the Greek freak, they're called unicorns because they're large, but they can handle the basketball. Though I have to say, when I visit the cloisters, if they were to hang a tapestry of Kristaps Porzingis being hunted for sport, that'd be an attraction. Unicorn, though? Unicorn? Can anyone who's the third offensive option after Derrick Rose be a unicorn? And if he's a unicorn, what's Carmelo? The Pegasus? I mean, to Phil Jackson, he is. He tried to go over his head and wound up shitting all over him. Hi-yo! Highly specific Knicks humor. Maybe I do need to get back on Hang Up. And listen, this is not a wild clam, but a wild claim that I need to address next. It's about an aircraft carrier. You know, an aircraft carrier group is several things. It's technology. It's people, and on some level, it is love. But I I can't say this as well as Sean Spicer can and did on April 11th. A carrier group is several things. Run with that theme, Sean. A a carrier group is several things. Uh, The forward deployment is is deterrence, presence. Um, It's prudent, um, but it does a lot of things. It ensures our our, um, 
We have the strategic capabilities, and it gives the president options in the region. But I think when you see a, a carrier group steaming into an area like that, uh, the forward presence of that is clearly, uh, through almost every instance, a, a, a huge deterrence. Unless if the carrier group isn't steaming in, but steaming out. Here's the New York Times reporting today. The carrier, the Carl Vinson, and the four other warships in its strike force were at that very moment sailing in the opposite direction of North Korea to take part in joint exercises with the Australian Navy in the Indian Ocean, 3,500 miles southwest of the Korean Peninsula. On the other hand, and to be totally fair to the Trump administration, the Easter egg roll did not go as badly as expected. But it wasn't just the administration putting forward the idea that the Carl Vinson was headed toward Korea. According to an April 9th release from the U.S. Pacific Command, Admiral Harry Harris, commander, U.S. Pacific Command, has directed the Carl Vinson strike group to sail north and report on station in the Western Pacific Ocean after departing Singapore on April 8th. Commander Dave Benham said in a statement, quote, the number one threat in the region continues to be North Korea due to its reckless, irresponsible, and destabilizing program of missile tests in pursuit of nuclear weapon capability. So here's the thing. Actually sending the carrier group, like if we actually sent it, like we said we sent it, it's not actual intimidation, especially to Kim Jong-un, who needs military brinksmanship to feel alive. It is a move known as a shot across the bow or saber rattling. In this case, it was a shot across the U.S. Carl Vinson's own bow, traveling backwards, landing just off the stern. I'm done with my nautical terminology. Rattling the saber? Okay, we tried to rattle the saber, then the saber slipped from its sheath, and we cut our own leg. It's the Plexico Burris in the nightclub of saber rattling, because New York sports references really drive home political analysis, I find. But who was this Carl Vinson? of whom the carrier was named. Carl Vinson served Georgia in the U.S. House of Representatives for 50 years. There, he chaired the Armed Services Committee, funded and oversaw the commissioning of the modern Navy. Though on the domestic front, Carl Vinson was a strict segregationalist to his last days in Congress. So it turns out the man, like the boat, was either backwards or simply headed in the wrong direction. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube's third cousin is Celine Dion. Just producer Mary Wilson's mother was so anti-drug, she wouldn't even let the kids have Cracklin Oat Bran for breakfast. That's, that's how anti-drug she was. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. His mom had the same ban. She just hated fiber. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He has been reported heading away from Australia for military exercises. Strangely, the Instagram of this announcement contains an unusual abundance of koalas. The gist, hoping to get above 50% and avoid a runoff, or just above 7% and not having to watch Nicolas Cage in face-off. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.